the upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. Empire. If you didn't know by now, my name is Chad, and every single week we go back in time and we take a journey to the mid 90s, the time in the World Wrestling Federation that some people either forgot about, they didn't watch, or they tapped out. So we tap into it and we go over the finer points of the new generation and declassify it in the process. Uh, this week, no different, but joined by a special guest. Of course, you might remember him as Knuckles Nelson, but I know him as Brendan Higgins, now accomplished author, as we've come to uh, meet each other through his awesome book, Waking Up from the Wrestling Ring to the Yoga Mat. You did a very big, comprehensive interview with uh, my tag team partner, uh, John Paz, a few months back, but it is my pleasure to finally get to talk to you on the air. Oh, the feeling's mutual, Chad. It's great to be with here, with you here tonight, and I'll do the best I can to recall an era of wrestling that I don't remember a whole lot of, but I, hopefully I remember some things. <laughs> no, absolutely. Well, first, you and I got connected via the great Jeff Katz. Uh, Jeff and I worked on a couple of shows in the Richmond, Virginia area over the last few years, so I got to know him very well, uh, and he introduced me to you as you were starting the promotion for your book, which is a great story and a great look back at all the things that happened in your life. And before we get started and before we talk about the new generation and, and you training and, and getting going in your career at this point of the 90s, uh, talk about what it was like just writing the book and kind of reflecting on it months and months now after it's been out. Sure. Well, back in 2018, I was going through a very difficult uh uh, part of my life, uh, things just everywhere I turned, things were not going well for me. And uh, I actually came up with the idea to jump on my Harley Davidson and drive deep into the mountains of Virginia to look up my childhood hero, a professional wrestler by the name of Handsome Jimmy, the Boogie Woogie Man Valiant. Right. And very fortunate to uh, meet with Boogie and get to know him and develop a relationship with him. And the guy helped me out so much with just his his life experience and um it, the experience I had with the guy was so profound that I ended up writing a book about it. And then it turned into just really um, more of a book of, about life than about wrestling. But it would be hard for me to write anything about my life without mentioning wrestling because it consumed my life for so long. Yeah. How can you not? I mean, uh, it's it, and when you it's kind of the thing when you get sucked into it, it's hard to suck yourself out of it. Am I right? <laughs> Yeah, I, I spent a lot of years, um, you know, I retired from wrestling in 2003, and there were a lot of years there where I wasn't involved in it at all. But after I wrote the book, I've had an opportunity to revisit a lot of it and uh, breathe life back into Knuckles Nelson. And I've done a lot of these shows and, um, you know, radio and print and, and television stuff. And it's been great to be able to look back on it because I look back on my time in the wrestling world very fondly these days. 
That's great. No, and wrestling has, it's such a weird time to be a wrestling fan because uh, you're either like 100% in or you're reflecting on being a fan, but wrestling still has a stranglehold on a real big part of pop culture. So kind of anything that's wrestling related, somebody's bound to discover it. Somebody's bound to pick it up at some point. And any kind of book that's interesting, any kind of story that's interesting is always something that grabs you. But Boogie Woogie, you know, is another one. He's from Virginia and he lives in Virginia. I'm about two and a half hours away from him. And I've been dying to get down to the museum and to the to the ring and to the house and everything. And I just missed you when you were there not too long ago. And the cool thing, and this is a really, really awesome part of your story is presenting boogie woogie with a uh a wwf tag team championship i can't imagine what it was like in that room when that happened why don't you explain that to the listeners well every year i go down on boogie's birthday and this year he turned 79 and i've been going down there since 2018 and every time i would go down with my best friend jeff katz he always is accompanying me on these um to go out to these birthday parties um two boogies uh wrestling camp hall of fame and museum um i would tell him that there's something missing this there's you know there's something that isn't there there is no um wwwf tag team championship belt so i started looking into having the belt made and it was that particular belt is not an easy one a lot of people were telling me flat out i don't have the plates i don't have any right. photos of it and, and they were just telling me no a belt makers tell me no i can't make it and then fate took over and i was um, put in touch with Dave Milliken, who was a legendary belt maker in Tennessee. Yeah. And, and Dave actually uh, loves Boogie. And he told me, give me a little time to look into this. And uh, he made an exact replica of that belt. He actually had it put on crocodile leather. It was absolutely gorgeous, beautiful belt. And I, the thing I did, I found in wrestling, if you don't want, if you want to keep something a secret, don't tell anybody. So I didn't <laughs> tell anyone. I, Jeff is the only one that really knew about it. Actually, I'll say another person that knew about it was Sheldon Goldberg. And Sheldon's a very close friend of mine. And I told Sheldon about it too. And other than that, um, I didn't tell anyone. So when I went down there to uh, the birthday uh, celebration for Boogie, um, I was able to get in the ring and present him with the Worldwide Wrestling Federation Tag Team Championship, and he was deeply touched by it. Boogie doesn't really get to – he's really, you know, past the whole wrestling thing. It's not really um, anything he gets excited about. But when he got me alone, he he was very touched and, and uh, thank, thanked me for bringing the belt back to the Valiant Brothers. Yeah, it was very cool. I got to see some of the video and pictures that were posted. Just a, a great moment. And anything that Boogie is around, it's always very, uh, it's always very touching, very sentimental. He's a very reflective guy, it seems. So, uh, it's cool. It's very cool, and uh, and and you being able to share that is also uh, very awesome. So, this show being about the mid '90s portion of the WWF specifically, you're a, a northeastern guy, New England guy. Uh, the WWF and even the WW uh, WWWF huge in the northeast it was their territory the obviously the mcmahon's connecticut the whole lineage going back to uh two generations prior uh what do you remember about the wwf's popularity as it kind of transitioned from the hulk hogan era into this mid-90s era and kind of where were you at as a fan and somebody looking to get into the wrestling business 
Well, I can tell you that growing up in the great state of Rhode Island, I loved all the, the major sports. I, I'm a Red Sox fan, a Patriots fan, a Celtics fan, and a Bruins fan. But professional wrestling stood head and shoulders above all of it. And there was nothing else in the Northeast but the Worldwide Wrestling Federation. And I grew up watching great stars like superstar Billy Graham, Bruno Sammartino, the Valiant Brothers, Adrian Adonis, people from that era. Those are the people that really influenced me. And as the 80s went by and um, – and cable came in, I was able to, you know, be exposed to the NWA, obviously other than magazines. I knew about all the other promotions, but to actually see it, it was when cable hit. And as the uh, the late 80s and early 90s rolled around, I was such a, a massive wrestling fan that it got so bad that I had to start doing it. And, um, <laughs> and I was able to, um, I was fortunate enough to be in the right place at the right time a lot. And after going to... Um, a wrestling school in Freetown, Massachusetts called uh, Coastal Pro Wrestling's Training Center. And then I also made my way up to Killer Kowalski's wrestling school. And um, after that, I continued to be in the right place at the right time. And I found myself at uh, TV tapings for the WWF in the early 90s and um, all the way up into the mid and, uh, and late 90s. See, and that's the one I knew that I, I remember seeing you on television off the top of my head in matches on, you know, Sunday Night Heat or some of the syndicated shows. I remember seeing you in the late 90s. I did not remember you in the early part of the 90s and, and in the mid-90s. Um, talk about, if you can, for the listeners, because we talk about the guys that come in for the TV tapings all the time. And now looking back, you start to see who some of those guys would go on to be. And it's kind of, it's almost like a who's who when they pass by the screen because you go, oh my gosh, that's so-and-so. Or, hey, he turned out to be so-and-so. But talk about what the process was like as a young guy trying to get exposure, trying to get FaceTime, getting booked for a TV taping. Chad, there was no such thing as a performance center back then. You went on the independent scene and you actually either had a connection that you could, um, you know, could maybe get you uh get you seen or, or get you an opportunity to talk to the right person. But what I did is I went to the Providence Civic Center and just went to the back and security stopped me. I told them I was one of the wrestlers and they just moved aside and let me walk right in. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I always remember thinking that was easy. And I went and the person you wanted to talk to back then was Tony Gurria, another hero from my childhood. Wow. And Tony Gurria was and is a true gentleman. He was just always very, he knew what I wanted before I even opened my mouth. And I told him that I had been uh, wrestling for five years, which was a lie. I told him that I was trained by Paul Roma, which was a lie. And the reason I did this was because I was trying to um, better my chances. I thought if I, if I, if he thought I was trained by a famous wrestler, that I would have had a better chance of getting in. And I knew some of Paul's guys uh, that, that were already doing TV. And he told me to come to White Plains, New York, the following week, and the, the following week, and it was in 1993, I found myself standing across the ring from Razor Ramon the night after he won the Intercontinental title for the first time. I had 16 matches, and Razor was obviously a well-seasoned pro, and the match reflected it. I mean, I, I didn't throw one punch in the entire match, and I took every single one of the moves in Razor's arsenal. He, he, un, he unleashed everything on me, and, and, um, and then that's where it started. And, and you know, when I was... At the TV tapings back then, there were, you know, a lot of times you, I wouldn't even wrestle. I would just be there and on standby. And the people that I remember being there were um, PJ Walker, who went on to become just incredible. Yep. 
Scott Taylor, who went on to become Scotty Too Heidi. These guys went on to become major stars in wrestling. Uh, Mike Bell, Tony DeVito, um, Mike Hollow, Tim McNeeny, Brian Walsh, Chris Duffy. These were all the, the New England, a lot of them were Kowalski guys that were there when we would come to this area. As the um, mid-90s and later 90s rolled around, um, I wrestled for the Boston Bad Boy, Tony Rumble, and Tony would have Jim Cornette and um, Kevin Sullivan, who were, you know, th these guys were like promoting people on the spot to TV and, and um, to go to, to WCW and WWF. I was fortunate enough to wrestle in both promotions back right. then. And it was simply just, you know, running into Kevin or Cornette and saying, I'm going to just bring you to TV next week and, and you'd be there the following week. It's just, it's so cool to hear it now because it could never happen in that manner ever again. It had to be during that time and during that, that during that just point of wrestling's, uh, you know, timeline. So take us back to White Plains. Take us back to the Westchester County Center. Great venue. Uh, I've seen many shows there. Uh, and you get to the building and you find out your, uh, what you're doing that night. What's the process? Is it on the board? Does somebody come and tell you, uh, you know, where do you kind of set up as you're getting ready for the match? Take us back to that first night. So I remember it very well because it was the first time. And uh, when I arrived at the arena, um, Tony Gurria told me to just, you know, relax and hang out. And that meant it was like, you know, one o'clock in the afternoon. And it wasn't going to be until seven o'clock at night. And that was when I realized you know, being a wrestler and being in the ring is just like that couple of minutes that you're in there, it's a lot of downtime. You know, it's a lot of time just hanging out and, and waiting around. And he told me as the day progressed to um, if I had any problems taking the razor's edge. And I said, no, I'll take the razor's edge off the top of the building. I would have done anything. <laughs> I would have done anything to wrestle back then. And he um, said, well, go introduce yourself to Razor and uh, he'll take it from there and just do whatever he says. So I went and I found uh, Scott and I and I introduced myself to him. And back then they used to do, you know, three or four weeks of TV in one day. And it was right. these marathon tapings that went on forever. And I remember him telling me, oh, no, I don't think you're working with me tonight. I, I, he already had a match with Reno Riggins was the guy okay. that he was going to wrestle that night. And I said, no, Tony told me that. He said, oh, I have more than one match then. And so we discussed the match and. Um, and then, when, you know, we went out into the ring. I remember walking down the aisle in the Westchester County Center. And now I'm, I had 16 matches. I was lying through my teeth about how long I had been wrestling. And um, it was a whole different ballgame from being in front of your family and friends on an independent show in a VFW hall <laughs> to suddenly being in a, in a banged out arena that's totally full. I remember walking down to ringside. And the ringside fans were giving me, they were encouraging me quite a bit. They were saying things like, who the F are you? We don't know who the F you are. You are an effing bum. And, um, and I get on the, I get in the ring and, and you know, the, the match, the, the match was brutal. I mean, you know, Razor did everything that he does to me. And I think I did okay in the match. He didn't have any complaints after the match. And he asked me if I would take a, the belly to back suplex or the the fall away slam that he used to do if I right. would take it from the second rope. And I and I was like, sure, I'll take it from the second rope. And it almost rolled me right out of the ring. It was just such an impactful move. And I remember being in the razor's edge and looking up on the screen and seeing myself up there in the razor's edge. It was pretty <laughs> surreal. But um, you know, that was um I, I remember also driving home from that experience feeling like 
a lot of kids want to play for the, you know, up here in New England, want to play for the Red Sox, or they want to play for the Patriots. And I wanted to wrestle in the WWF, and I had just wrestled the Intercontinental Champion on national television. So I was feeling pretty good. You, you know, but people might not understand why you would feel so good about getting your ass kicked, but I felt pretty good. <laughs> now, here's one important part, and, you know, I, uh, I do a podcast with Shane Douglas, and Shane Douglas talks about in 1986 when he showed up to his first TV taping, and he nearly didn't know what he was going to be doing that night. Uh, had three different names as he went out for four different matches. Did you have a different name that night that you uh, performed against Razor Ramon? I did. Well, first of all, you mentioned Shane Douglas. I think Shane Douglas is awesome. I've seen a lot of his recent interviews, and I could listen to that guy talk all day. What a what a what a true wrestling legend he is. Um, my name that night was Tully McShane. <laughs> Tully McShane. <laughs> Really, that's why. That's I wonder why I asked that. No, that's a unbelievable uh, difference than what you would end up having as Knuckles Nelson. Were you Knuckles Nelson at that time, and what did you think of Tully McShane? Well, Tully McShane, when I first broke into the wrestling world, I didn't really know what my wrestling name was going to be, and I was at a wrestling practice with a bunch of guys. Uh, Brian Brieger, who was one of my trainers, and Brutal Bob Evans, who was another one of my trainers, and Nick Steele, another one, were all kicking around ideas and, and um, they, it was suggested that I, I looked similar to Tully Blanchard and um, someone said, what about Tully McShane, the Irish Prince? And I said, sure. I really didn't have any attachment to it, but um, that's what my wrestling name was for the first couple of years when I was, when I was in the, uh, on the independence. Yeah. The, uh, they actually on the, the, the database that has the matches listed, it has you listed as Max Shane nice so just so you know if you want to look in the history books it's max shane uh and you can see that uh second rope fall away slam in the match because it is available on youtube if you uh type in razor Ramon versus max shane for those of you who do like to go back and watch the stuff we talk about that's one of the things i always hear on this show brendan is that if i say it people want to go watch it so i got to kind of direct them in the uh the, the proper way to check it out, but uh, that okay. So that's the first one. What's the protocol after the match? Are you going to go over to Razor Ramon, thank him for the opportunity? Do you kind of hang around the locker room? What's the uh, what, what's the protocol for that night? I actually like Max Shane better. That's a pretty cool name, but uh, I <laughs> I, um, I I was always trained that. You're, you know, there, there's no one that's going to be less experienced than me at this point in, in my wrestling time, in, in my time in the ring. So to go over and thank the person that just kicked your ass is, is proper protocol. And I did. And I thanked him and I asked him if there was anything that I did wrong or anything that I could have done different that I could do to improve for the next time. And, um, you know, Scott Hall was such a seasoned veteran at that point. He was so experienced and he looked like a Greek god and he was super nice to me. And he he gave me a few pointers that I really don't remember, but he said overall everything was fine and just, you know, he wished me luck and and um and that was it. And I got paid $150 and I like I said, I felt like I it, it was bigger than pitching in Fenway Park to me. <laughs> I can imagine. It's uh what a time. And again, it's it, it for the WWF as a whole. It's a time in transition, but for somebody like you who's coming up, you're looking at the bright lights, and it is the WWF. Do you remember anything about the company at that point as an outsider going in? Did it not seem like as big a production as maybe it, it could have been a few years prior? Especially that the County Center is not the biggest venue in the world, 
But when you look at it on WWF TV, it looks much bigger than it really is. Yeah, like, you know, I when I was at the arena, like I said, I, you get there early in the afternoon, and I started watching the people that were coming to work, and it was people like Randy Savage, the Steiner Brothers, Mr. Perfect, The Undertaker. Um, you know, th these were the people that I was watching walk in. So to me, it really, it, that was as big as it got. It didn't get any bigger than that. No, it's uh, yeah. I I I could go back and watch those TV tapings with the sound off and just look at them because I just think that the WWF production at that time was so in a league of its own, and it was always cool that WWF and WCW had a different style of production. You knew which show you were watching when you were watching it because they had different production uh, looks. Uh, but what did you do after that? Did you wait for them to call you? Did you always try to uh, approach them? Like, what was the, did you work into a rotation? What was the next steps after that? After that particular night, I knew that I needed to go back to the independence and gain more experience because I, I, I wasn't ready for, for that level of wrestling. And it was, it, it would be several more years before I actually went back to, um, to, to TV on a more regular basis. And, and you didn't pursue it at all? It was something that you didn't feel maybe was the right time? Did anybody call you and you turned it down during that time period? No. I just I, – I knew I needed to go back to the independence. I worked a lot. I wrestled yeah. a lot. And during that time from 94 and 95, I had some pretty high-profile independent matches um, but and, and transitioned into becoming Knuckles Nelson, which was a name that was given to me by the late, great Boston bad boy Tony Rumble. But um, it wasn't until 97 that I started going back to TV. Now, did you uh, did you see the, you know, again, I talk about this show as being in a down period for the WWF. How was independent wrestling in New England around that time? Did it still have its regular audience? Did you kind of see people kind of going away from wrestling because the mainstream wasn't as popular as it had been a few years prior? We had a couple of different promotions here in the New England area that had their own following and their own fans, and it was always busy. I was very fortunate. I wrestled a lot back in those days. I was wrestling every weekend, sometimes twice, uh, you know, Friday and Saturday or Saturday and Sunday, which was um, very fortunate because it, so it, it was it was popular. And actually, to this very day, some of those promotions are still running and, and still, you know, they, they're, they're, uh, their fan base is still there. And that is that is very cool. And I, I love that. I love the history of that, especially the, the long established uh, promotions that could hold on. And then obviously, as 98, 99 would hit, that's when every independent promotion was just seeing ridiculous crowds and, and, and the numbers were off the charts. And you could go to any high school gym in the world and see thousands and thousands of people. That's exactly what it was like, and, and especially with Tony Rumble's uh, Century Wrestling Alliance and then the NWA New England, his his uh, shows were filled with a really good mixture of people from television because he had working agreements with uh, Cornette and Kevin Sullivan, and we would have, you know, you could go to one of Tony Rumble's shows and Kane would be on the show or Prince Albert would be on right. the show or uh, Ivory or... Um, uh, you know, it's a, a lot of the, a lot of the uh, Christian. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm just trying to think off the top of my head who, who was there. There were, there were always WWF and and uh, WCW people mixed in to our shows. We, you know, I was in a tag team called the Brotherhood with Eric Sprazier, and we feuded with the Public Enemy all over the country while they were in WCW. 
it's, it's very cool. I love to see you post a lot of posters and you post a lot of cool stuff from your career on uh, online, and it's uh, it's awesome to see. And I just saw one that you uh, that you had posted. It was Gangrel and Christian. Uh, was it against you guys? Was it against the Brotherhood? I, I I'm not. I don't think so. I, I'd have to see the poster because I like you said. I, I came across these recently and started posting them because I was. You know, those are um, those are some. It's pretty cool. That's pretty cool stuff. Those those high level independent shows where, where you know, the, the, it, it was from there to ECW or WWF or WCW. That's that's how high level it was. Now, now, how about some of your contemporaries and other guys that you worked with? Were they looking to get that call? Were they trying to get to the WWF to work the the uh, you know the matches on television? And, and really, you know, how would you classify them? Are they enhancement matches? Are they preliminary matches? What's the proper term to call them? Well, you know, there's I have no I take no offense to being you know oh you were a jobber in WWF yes I was and I'm you know and I'm proud to say it was enhancement talent extras, jobbers, whatever you want to call us, that's what we were. But, you know, um, I remember one night I was with a, uh, it was myself and Duke Stalin versus the headbangers. And we had a very competitive match. And and uh, one of the headbangers said, well, you're only as good as who you beat. And, <laughs> you know, so we, we had an opportunity, you know, we had, looking back on it now, we were being looked at at that time. And for some reason they didn't sign us, but uh, because of that particular match was, very competitive. And then the following week or the following taping, we wrestled them again and it was a complete squash match. So they were getting their heat back for giving us so much in the previous encounters. But everybody wanted to make it. Everybody was trying to get to that level, every single person. But I knew at one point, my first match in WCW was against the Giant and Lex Luger in a tag match in yes. Savannah, Georgia. <laughs> yeah. And I remember going down there thinking about how this is all going to go. And, um, you know, like, what I didn't realize was when you have competition, like some of the wrestlers I mentioned earlier, you know, pe people like Ric Flair and Hulk Hogan, your competition, I was just lucky to be there. Uh, another match that, again, it's the one that I remembered seeing you on uh, in 99 was against a big boss man. On one of the syndicated shows. And uh, it's just, it. I, whenever I could talk to somebody that worked in the ring with some of these guys, that they were so larger than life, it's unbelievable. But you as a fan and growing up with wrestling, and, you, and you're in the ring with a guy like the Big Boss Man. Again, it's like with Scott Hall, Greek God, Big Boss Man, big guy <laughs> wielding that nightstick. Can you take us back to that night in 1999? I sure can. Uh, when I... Found out I was wrestling the big boss man. I knew it was going to be an easy night because, uh, you know, he was such a pro, but it was not an easy night. We had a um, – he gave me a lot of offense in that match. And right before we went through the curtain, he looked at me and he said, forget everything that we just said. We we're short on time. So, <laughs> so you know, like um, I'm pretty sure looking back on it now, that was by design the entire time. And we went out to the ring. He gave me a beat and he gave me – like I, I don't know why if it was just – you know, actually, the, the, his his spot in in the um, on TV at that point, he was really angry. So I was a person that he was going to take it out on that week, and he did. And uh, you know, he did the whole thing with the nightstick and handcuffing me to the ropes and the the whole deal. And um, and a couple of the punches he hit me with were real. He 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 gave me a couple of good shots that night. But it was you know, again, I was. I was always fine with getting my my ass kicked because I was just happy to be there. You got your brotherhood tights on in this match with the boss man. 
And you yeah. also almost had those tights removed <laughs> by the boss. Yes. <laughs> and, and I also remember the NWA was really not into having their um, tag team champion getting beat up on television like that. They were, I remember them not wanting me to do that anymore. But if I had any chance of getting to the next level, um, you don't show up and say, well, I really don't want to do a job tonight. Right. You know, it doesn't work that way. You've got to do what they want you to do. And, and you know, like and it, it's – uh, I would never have said that. I did what they wanted me to do, and and I, you know, I kept doing it up until um, until they didn't until they started looking at other people. No, but it would have been funny if you said that in uh, 1993. <laughs> <If> you, right? <laughs> hey, I'm not doing a job tonight, Razor. I'm not. Uh, I'm not doing that. You want to get me off that second rope? You try me. <laughs> now that would have been funny. Yes. You would have gone home in a body bag that night uh, for sure. But, uh, but yeah, like I said, so any of the contemporaries that were also trying to get into those spots, I mean, they were in New England, you know, Vermont, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, Connecticut, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania. There were so many places to go to uh, because they were in the Northeast so frequently. Was it kind of like a competition between certain guys that they wanted to get on these cards and almost to the fact that it was like, maybe detrimental that they were too focused on wanting to just get onto TV. Um, it seemed to me that the way they did those marathon TV tapings, there was plenty of, there were plenty of spots and plenty of uh, opportunity for everyone. I don't really remember ever feeling that or feeling that from another person. It was just, you know, we would usually drive with a bunch of us in, in a car and, and, um, and it was a, you know, a pretty positive experience every time. Now, what do you think that era was missing for WWF? You know, it, it some people may say it got a little too car, too cartoony. You know, you, you hear the names of Doink or Mantar or Bastion Booger and guys who have great pedigrees outside of just certain characters. What do you think it was that made fans kind of turn away from the WWF program? Was it lack of Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage being a commentator and not a wrestler? No Roddy Piper, no Ultimate Warrior. What do you think it was? Well, I think it's it's ebbs and flows. I mean, like you you kind of just hit it on the head. Some of the characters they were coming up with were not, uh, you know, they they, they, they wasn't going to hold anyone's interest. I remember when Wild Bill Irwin came to the WWF and they turned him into the goon, and it's like yes. this guy this guy was like you know the the super destroyers and the the long riders, and you know they 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 they, they took a lot of wrestlers and did that to them and in that particular time period. I don't think it was anything that that you know I, I think a pure wrestling fan was turned off by that stuff. And and obviously when they would turn it around a few years later, you would see how there was a thirst and there was a desire for fans to come back to the arenas. And again, it's why independent promotions were making ridiculous money in 98 and 99 and early 2000 because everybody wanted to see wrestling. And the fact that the shows you were on, for the most part, had a huge TV influence, it, it really was a, a special time to uh, you know to be competing in the ring and in front of all those crowds, I'm sure. Yeah, the, the main person that I wrestled for in that era was Tony Rumble, and yeah. Jeff Katz was involved in that heavily. And uh, Jeff elevated everything that we did on uh, the Century Wrestling Alliance and the the NWA New England. But um, it, it, you know, the, it was not uncommon for there to be five thousand people in a in a you know a, an arena in a, in a high school gym or a high school stadium or an outdoor venue. Um, be, because the, the popularity of it was, and it, it was also the people that he was bringing in. I can remember being on one show where it was the Public Enemy, 
it was Abdul the Butcher, Sergeant Slaughter, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, all on the same show. This is an independent wow. tour, you know, and, and it was it was good stuff. It was great. And and uh Demolition Axe was on that show as well. It was just these so these shows were loaded with talent, and, and he would surround them with local guys. But his local guys were all the guys that were going to the next level. Um, I don't know if you remember a, a, a guy by the name of Steve Bradley. Steve Bradley was yeah. on a, oh, was yeah. his shows, on, on Tony's shows. And, you know, Steve Bradley was just like – he was ahead of all of us. He, that, what, I wrestled him probably a dozen times, and I used to always just try to keep up with him. He was so good. Yeah, hi, at one time, highly, highly touted uh, prospect. And just, you know, unfortunately, it didn't uh, pan out. But we got to talk about uh, Boston Bad Boy before we uh, we wrap up. A guy who, again, I read his name in the magazines growing up as a kid in New Jersey. And, you know, I, I didn't go to the independent shows. Uh, you read about him in PWI. You saw the results. Uh, but then getting to discover him as we got YouTube and social media and seeing clips um, was he as amazing a guy as he was a character on television? I also knew Tony Rumble from magazines and from ICW before I actually met him. And his first matches in the wrestling world as a wrestler, his first match was against Bruiser Brody. His second match was against Superstar Billy Graham. Uh, you know, so Tony, Tony was, you know, he was, the, he was there. He was the real deal. And when he started running his own promotion and broke away from the Savoldis, Tony was the most charming person I had ever met. He was, he, he, I learned so much from him on how to treat people. He treated people the way he wanted to be treated. And, and everyone that worked, I don't know anyone that really disliked him. He was, he was a great guy and he was a really good um, wrestling mind. And I remember him telling me one time, I wish that the, WWF would give me one of these developmental contracts like they're giving these wrestlers and just turn my promotion into um, in, into a, a developmental league for them, which they ended up doing in other areas. And they might have done it with Tony, except that, you know, he died at 42 years old of a heart attack. One day he just disappeared from the planet. We were all totally shocked by it. Um, but so that may have that may have happened. But he um, he he ran excellent shows and he had excellent storylines and he said to me one day i have no use for tully mcshane but i have an idea for this guy named knuckles nelson and everywhere i went after that everyone loved the name knuckles nelson it was a great name and i think someone that may have been a um someone with more ability and someone that was going to the next level could have took knuckles nelson to much higher heights than i did but uh i was very fortunate that you know he gave it he gave the idea to me and you know he put me over had me win with my gimmick, which was knocking people out with brass knuckles. I mean, I'm talking about people like Tito Santana and Jimmy Snuka and Perry Saturn and Tom Brandy and Tony Atlas. And these guys were not happy about losing to me. <laughs> Tony knew how to build a, a, someone up. And I was one of his guys. And he was, and, and you know, he, he got me to the point where I was able to get into the, the, the biggest wrestling companies in the world. What a great story. Yeah, and uh, just so sad uh, how he passed away. And uh, I talked to Jeff Katz uh, in, in an interview a few years ago, and he talked about it too and just how devastated everybody was and the, the, the just the void it left, and especially in New England wrestling. And obviously, when you think of New England wrestling, you think of Killer Kowalski, but I got to say, as an outsider, you also think of the Boston bad boy because, I mean, he just was such a larger-than-life guy 
And uh, your stories about him here are, are, are remarkable. And I just wish there was more about him that people could discover outside of just maybe stumbling on him on a YouTube or seeing somebody post something on an Instagram or Twitter. I wish there was something else we could really look at. Um, well, well his, whole, his whole purpose was to help people get to the next level. He was a selfless individual. And if you look over my shoulder here, you see the NWA World Tag Team Championship belt, which I was fortunate enough to win on three separate occasions, all thanks to Tony. He put me in a position to win those titles. He put me in a position to be the NWA New England champion. I went to Japan several times. I wrestled in every major wrestling company there was in the world at the time because Tony Rumble made it, opened all of those doors. Those doors would have never opened up for me otherwise. I was on the first ever Eddie Gilbert Memorial Show in Cherry Hill, New Jersey in 1996. Uh, where there were a hundred people that were a hundred wrestlers that were trying to get booked on this show. And I walked in the door with Tony Rumble and Jim Cornette walked through the crowd and said, Tony Rumble, you old dog, can you book this cluster F for us? <laughs> I knew right at that moment that I was with the right person, Chad. That's awesome. What a great story. Now it's uh, remarkable. And again, you've had a great career and, and your story is remarkable and please before we say goodbye, give all of the plugs that you can for the book, where they can find it, social media, and everything in between. For uh, I'm going to call you Knuckles before we get out of here. For Knuckles Nelson, Brendan Higgins. Well, the book is called Waking Up from the Wrestling Ring to the Yoga Mat. It's it, my The thing I did in this book the most is I told the truth. There is very honest accounts of things that happened to me in the wrestling world and in my life back then. And it's available on Amazon. There's also a Instagram and a Facebook page. And Waking Up is a also a website from the Wrestling Ring to the Yoga Mat. And I will leave you with what Tony Rumble always said. We are Boston born and Boston bred, and we'll be Boston bad till we're Boston dead. <laughs> oh, I love that. that. If I didn't have a whole spiel to say before we say goodnight, I would absolutely have ended on that. That's a great uh, – what a great quote. Uh, can't, uh, man, I almost wish I didn't have to go into my whole spiel, but I will, but I appreciate you sharing that. Uh, very, very nice. If you want to follow me on social media, it's at Chad EMB on Twitter, on Instagram, it's at IB exclusives. My website is called IB exclusives.com. There we've got a lot of cool autograph signings going on, baseball, wrestling, and everything in between. This website is tmptempire.com. All of our podcasts under one roof, including the franchise Shane Douglas and the triple threat podcast uh, and all the great shows that John's got going on the interviews and everything uh, for me. You can also catch me on eyes up here with the queen of extreme Francine every single week on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Francine podcast. Uh, it has been great to finally get a chance to talk to you. We will do it again. Absolutely. And uh, even though uh, you and I might have our Mets versus Red Sox uh, different, your uh, nice personalization to me in your book was very kind to the Mets. So we can end with a let's go Mets. Is that good? Can we do that? <laughs> yes, we, we can. And uh, I appreciate you having me on. Thank you very much. Absolutely. So for uh, my man, Knuckles Nelson, this is your old buddy, the Chadster. We will catch you on the flip side. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling, What the World is Downloading.